Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to France Elects, a special world review podcast series on the French election from the New Statesman. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent at The New Statesman. Over this atypical election campaign ahead of the next vote for president in April, I'll be joined by some of the sharpest observers of French politics, delving deep into the big issues shaping the race to lead the EU's biggest military power and its second largest economy. This week, we're talking about how Ukraine has affected the campaign for president. It's interesting because I would say what was his biggest vulnerability until now, this suspicion of complacency towards Putin, uh, the Baltic states, the Nordic states in, in the EU, as well as Central and Eastern European states, so that, that's quite a lot of people, is now turning into one of his biggest strengths internally. He is seen as the person who will have tried absolutely everything. I'm joined by Jeremy Cliff, writer at large for The New Statesman, and Tara Varner, director of the Paris Bureau of the European Council on Foreign Relations, to talk about how the war in Ukraine has affected the campaign for president. At least one prediction from Eric Zemmour has not aged particularly well. On Ukraine, the problem is not that Russia is threatening an invasion. I don't believe it will happen. Russia, I am betting, will not invade Ukraine. The far-right polemicist-turned-politicians' rivals have made hay with this particular clip, shared widely on social media in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yet the truth is that the election, although just a month away, is very far from voters' minds. Faced with Europe's worst security crisis for a generation, the campaign has taken a back foot as Russia's increasingly brutal war on its neighbour dominates airwaves and the front pages. If the war has had any effect on the campaign, it has been to reinforce the widespread perception that Macron, already the favourite in this election, will walk it. Voters are unlikely to want to change a leader with experience in foreign policy for arrival at this time of grave crisis at the EU's borders, the thinking goes. Macron, now the world leader Putin speaks to more regularly than almost any other, hopes that his positioning as Europe's elder statesman in negotiations with Russia and support for Ukraine will help win him a second term in office. For me, the immense responsibility that President Putin today takes is to fight a brother nation and to want to destroy and humiliate it on the worst terms. This is a historic error. 
I am rather lucid. I think that in the short term, the war is more likely to continue. And many of his rivals are, to varying degrees, tainted by fondness for or links to Putin. That closeness includes the chumminess of Marine Le Pen, who had to pulp more than a million leaflets which featured a photograph of her shaking hands with the Russian president. Here's Le Pen in 2017 after meeting with Putin in Moscow. I think he also represents a new vision. A new world has emerged over the past few years. That of Vladimir Putin, of Donald Trump in the US, of Mr Modi in India. I am probably the one who shares with these great nations a vision of cooperation once more and not of submission. So is the election now a foregone conclusion? To discuss, I'm joined by Tara and Jeremy. Thank you very much for being here. Tara, if I can start with you, how have these just under two weeks uh, played out in, in France? So we saw that uh, Macron's official campaign declaration kept being postponed, of course, and his campaign team, you know, there were a number of meetings, uh, political meetings planned, notably one in Marseille last week, and it didn't happen because his team basically said it would not really be decent of the president to announce in this context. And so he waited until the very last moment last Thursday, uh, March 3rd, because the next day was basically the day where the Constitutional Council would present the official number of candidates. So he waited until the day before this deadline to send a letter to the regional press where he presented his political manifesto to the French people. It was called Lettre aux Français, so Letter to the French People. And he didn't do it in a radio announcement. He didn't do it in a TV announcement. I think also to stress this, this was a moment where he didn't want to put himself uh, forward too much. He wanted to announce his candidacy, and I think it makes sense for him politically to uh, be this incumbent who embodies continuity in, in this context, but he didn't want to make too much of a show of it, uh, I guess contrary to what was planned initially by his campaign team. Jeremy and I were actually in Paris last Monday, so just a few days after after the war broke out, and we were speaking to people in politics and public policy about French politics, but obviously this was the topic colouring all of our conversations. So I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I personally came to Paris with quite an open mind as to how this would affect the campaign. And I think there is a plausible argument you can make that Macron was played by Putin, that he, you know, he went to Moscow and uh, he says Putin gave him assurances that if there was a an escalation, it would not be Russia which initiated it. And um, he, he presented himself as kind of Europe's diplomat in chief and um, wanted to, to position himself as the kind of lead mediator and he failed. Russia did start a war. And so I think there is a, I, I came to Paris with one plausible hypothesis being that this would hurt Macron. The consensus from, from our conversations was very much not that. And it, in fact, the consensus is that it will probably help Macron's re-election bid. Can you sort of explain that a bit? Sure. I, and I fully agree. I mean, I think I've been trying to to sort this out in my head as well. And it's interesting because I would say what was his biggest vulnerability until now, this suspicion of complacency towards Putin, a very strong suspicion, of course, from uh, the Baltic states, the Nordic states in, in the EU, as well as Central and Eastern European states. So that, that's quite a lot of people is now turning into one of his biggest. So this vulnerability is turning into one of his biggest trends internally. 
And so he is really seen as, and I think this is how they are going to to portray it, he is seen as the person who will have tried absolutely everything. And so if it comes to a point where we need to increase the military assistance that were already provided to Ukraine, and when I say we, I mean both uh, France and European Union member states and European Union institutions, there will be a justification for it because he will have literally tried everything. He will have gone to Moscow. He will have gone to Kiev. He will have spoken to Putin repeatedly, both on his own initiative and apparently request by Putin to speak to him as well. I think where this is going to prove a bit problematic is basically in the days and weeks to come. We are approximately a month away from the first round of the presidential election. And Macron is, of course, as as an official candidate now, he'll have to continue dealing with the war in Ukraine, but he will have also to deal with domestic policy files. And this means that he will have to yield this position that he has put himself in of one of the diplomatic leaders in Europe, he will have to le- yield this position to other Europeans. And my sense is he will have to yield this position notably to the Germans. I am not completely sure the Germans are ready to take this over, but they really will have to, because I don't think Putin is ready to speak to Borrell or to von der Leyen. They are there, and I think they're doing you know, they're, they're literally changing the European Union day by day right now. And and we need to see what will happen in, in the Versailles summit taking place on the 10th and 11th of March. But I think Putin will still want to talk to one European Union uh, member state leader. I fail to see who it could be other than Olaf Scholz. And this will also have consequences for Macron because then he'll find himself not leading so much on the diplomatic file anymore, though I, I mean, I don't see him abandoning it, but he won't be able to be at the forefront of all of that. And he'll have to go back to domestic policy files and to discussions and debating with the 11 other uh, candidates to the presidential election. Just if I may come, come in there, I, I, I don't have anything to add to, to Tara's analysis, but I do have a couple of observations from my uh, travels in France. As you say, Ida, we were in Paris Beforehand, I was in Cannes on the, the north coast at a rally by Valérie Pécresse, the centre-right candidate or conservative candidate for president, who some of us only a few weeks ago saw as a quite a credible challenge to, to Macron if she could get into the second round with him. And I think it was very telling that at, at this rally of supporters for her uh, Republican Party in Cannes, she, she really didn't have anything to say about Macron's role in the crisis at all. She had a section at the, at the start of her speech where she talked about how Zemmour wanted a French Putin. She talked about Marine Le Pen's well-documented links with the Kremlin. She talked about the leftist Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's also been something of a dove on Russia. And she said, shame on them. And there was literally no mention of Macron at all, which I think speaks to the point that Tara raises, which is that he's got himself in a position where he's covered off any potential criticisms of his role in all this. But I think alongside this sense that the the focus may be shifting to Schultz, I think another thing that, again, from from my uh, travels in, in, in France over the last week, might worry Macron and his team is how a cost of living crisis now plays out. It's, it's of course, a very sensitive subject. We saw the, the Gilets jaunes protests a couple of years ago take to the streets over energy and other living costs. And we are now seeing a major spike in those costs again. If I were in their shoes, that would be probably the main domestic piece of fallout that I would worry about. 
I fully agree, Jeremy, and I think this is precisely what they will try to do with with the upcoming summit this week. You know, this summit was always planned in in the French EU Council presidency as a big moment. I think the the title of it was you know changing the European growth model. So it was already in in the in the pipe, and it was supposed to be focused uh, mostly on energy and and digital transformation and transitions. And now the digital side of things has been dropped, and it's going to be on European defense and energy and economic resilience. They are going to put forward a resilience plan, economic, and basically that would be pursuing not exactly the same efforts as the post-COVID ones, but having in mind that, of course, you know, there was going to be a spike in prices, energy prices, which worries everyone in Europe, but also in wheat prices. There is a fear that there is going to be a shortage of, of wheat and basically food shortages. So I think another element of European sovereignty that uh, we haven't completely looked at until now is going to be food sovereignty. How we ensure that there is food resilience in the EU. This is going to be extremely worrying. And, and you know, uh, the gilets jaunes were one big element and it was on energy. But if people don't have enough food to eat, then that may lead to a, a whole new level of protest, of course. And so he is going to mix these foreign policy priorities with domestic policy priorities, I would say. And I think he, he is hoping to come out of this big summit in Versailles with very strong uh, announcements, with uh, European unity still at the forefront, and, and really an image of, of a united European Union, shared assessment of threats. He wants to be able to show that he is, he is the person who can lead France, not just for continuity, but actually because he'll have understood all the challenges ahead and that he is best placed to present uh, solutions to these challenges, whether it comes to Putin, whether it comes to energy, whether it comes to food, and whether it's about actually thinking about these climate and, and digital transformations as well. And this is one element typically where I guess he's hoping also to get younger share of voters to, to come out and vote on April 10th, because one of the big worries that we had was, of course, the level of turnout. If you look at the two previous local national elections in France, so the regional elections uh, last year and the mayoral elections the year before that, the turnout was extremely low when these are actually levels of governance where, where uh, the decision makers have a true impact on citizens' life. And traditionally, the, the presidential election is one where people come out to vote. So usually three out of four French voters come out and vote. And it seems now in this current context that what was initially planned to be an election with a lower turnout than, than initially may turn out to be a, a higher turnout. So I think we look at this closely and he knows that he also needs to get younger people to come out and, and vote for him. We, we tend to talk about what's happened now as almost um, it, it being a, basically a foregone conclusion for, for Macron because there will probably be a sense that uh, now is not the time to change a leader who whatever thoughts you ascribe to him has quite a lot of experience and is experienced in, in foreign relations in a way that not many of his uh, competitors are. But also, um, one of the things we spoke about in the la on the last episode that I had you on, Jeremy and Tara, was this idea of France traditionally having a kind of balancing role between the two poles of power in Europe, the US and, and Russia, and traditionally being more open to some kind of pan-European order with the Russians or the Soviets before them. But one of the things that came through in our conversations, Jeremy, when we were in Paris was that this is an issue on which there is 
pretty much unanimous public sympathy across the EU, across France for one cause. And that's pretty unprecedented. And that's led to these really kind of far-ranging economic sanctions that we've seen from from the West, from the EU. By implication, that means that this kind of space there was for a politics or that was sympathetic to to Russia to an extent, which we've seen taken up by people like Le Pen and Zemmour and Mélenchon to varying degrees, has almost completely closed. Jeremy, do you think it's it's true that this crisis, because it's shown Russia in such a bad light for the French electorate is going to hurt those candidates who have traditionally argued for some kind of accommodation with Russia. Absolutely. We're already seeing that past friendliness towards Russia or um, support for this kind of total equidistance between East and West in French politics has become a major albatross for for those who expressed it in the past. But in terms of where what this does to France's security and foreign policy tradition, I'll say something brief and then defer to Tara, who of course knows this much better. But the sense I get is that we're we're living through a sort of, obviously for tragic reasons, we're living through something of a reinvigoration of the transatlantic alliance. You've seen Biden focus squarely on Europe again. You've seen the role of NATO strongly underlined. You've seen NATO and the EU work in obvious complementarity to each other. And you're seeing NATO strengthen its own eastern frontiers, including with French involvement. So as I understand it, the proposed new multinational battle group that will be deployed to Romania, which will line up with the battle groups in the Baltics and the Poland, Poland already, will be led by France. So this is France playing a, a kind of quite a leading role in NATO and not the quote unquote foot dragging one that it has at certain points in the, in the past. And so all of which in some ways speaks against the French tradition of equidistance or quasi-equidistance. But I think where that tradition will find expression, I would imagine, particularly if Macron, as seems very likely now, wins, will be in the case for a sovereign Europe and a a, a sovereign Europe in defence that has the capability to defend itself. Obviously, this new transatlantic unity relies heavily on the fact that there is an amenable president in the White House. And I mean, some of the horrifying statements about Putin's attack on Ukraine that have come out of the American right, the Republican Party, the likes of Tucker Carlson, and of course, Donald Trump himself, are an alarming reminder of the turn that US foreign policy could take if a Republican candidate wins in 2024. And so I think while we are seeing this reinvigoration of the transatlantic alliance, I think there will be valid cases to be made for Europe to drastically accelerate its own push towards its own military capabilities. And we're likely going to see some of that at the Versailles summit, as Tara's already intimated. There's talk of move towards a long mooted but um, not yet enacted 5,000 strong EU rapid deployment force, which some see as a sort of very embryonic EU army, more interoperability between EU armed forces, more common procurement. And so while recent events have shown how essential NATO is and, and how unlikely it is that that's going to change any time in the foreseeable future, I think that the Gaullist tradition in, in French politics and the tradition that sees a place for France between East and West will find expression in that push for a stronger Europe. All of which fits in with Macron's long-standing agenda, right? Like he's always argued for a more integrated Europe, what he calls a sovereign Europe, able to act uh, diplomatically, militarily, economically, to a degree on its own. It does, but it does cast in doubt some of his, shall we say, more Gaullist utterances like the one about the brain death of NATO. I mean, NATO looks now very far from brain dead. But I agree, I think he's, he's, he's long pushed for more European sovereignty. And I think that agenda will be strengthened by this a great deal. 
Yes, and I'm quite struck as well that a lot of multilateral institutions are gaining ground again, you know, even in terms of legitimacy. The UNGA resolution that was vetoed by only uh, five countries, among which, you know, North Korea, Belarus, and Syria, I think, is presented as a sign of a very vibrant multilateralism of uh, these institutions, which seemed, you know, to be very anachronistic in a way that didn't fit with the current international system. When the adversary of the West is Russia again, it seems that they put themselves in motion uh, much more quickly. So there are G7 uh, communiques, there's the United Nations, NATO is is gaining grounds again, the EU is just making enormous strides into uh, finally putting itself in the position where it could build military capabilities. And all this is happening in the span of basically 10 days. Uh, when it was about Iraq, when it was about Libya, when it was about Syria, when it's about China, you see, and I'm not putting all of these issues on the same level, but basically the international system seems to be a lot more stuck. Whereas when it comes to Russia, there is a sense that we know, and today's Russia is not the same, of course, as the USSR, but there is a sense that these institutions can put themselves in motions again. There is a sense that we understand what we're dealing with and the level of reaction is much faster, but also much wider. And I think that's interesting. In terms of how the war plays into the campaign and and how it puts (laughs) the other candidates in a bind, I think that's very clear. They've basically had to flip-flop their positioning. So Zemmour, I would say Zemmour and Mélenchon are still the two which, you know, are almost doubling down on their narrative. So uh, Zemmour keeps saying that, you know, it's quite it's quite practical to be an autocrat. There's a lot that you can do uh, when he was asked about. So uh, March 8 is, is International Women's Rights Day. He was asked about that and he said, well, you know, any society that takes women's rights into account uh, is feminist. And so it's less masculinist. And so this is why the West is failing, because we're adopting feminist values. So it's, you know, I'm not saying that it's completely linked, but there is really a sense that he's, he's still in admiration of the autocratic, very masculinist manner of leading of Putin and others. So, you know, Mélenchon is more of a contradiction, I would say. He's saying that he's against the war, that he wants to help the Ukrainians, but at the same time that we need to withdraw from NATO and not just NATO integrated command. But he's been repeating that in the the last meetings that that he did in in the past few days. So some of them are still pushing for the very, I would say, pro-Russian narrative. Marine Le Pen is the one who is also in a very, very complicated situation, not only because she has an 8 million loan with a Russian bank. So there is a sovereignty issue, but I think there is also an issue for her of whether this bank will survive, whether she'll get her money, whether she'll be able to do the campaign, and ultimately, if she manages to do so, how she'll be able to reimburse and what this means for her party's finances. For now, she is still by an inch ahead of Zemmour, uh, but the difference between her and Macron is widening. So Macron is at approximately 30% in the polls and she's at 15. So it's a ratio from one to two between the two of them. And this is clearly linked to the Russia issue because all the the candidates now are being asked about foreign policy. Of course, foreign policy has completely taken over the campaign and most of them are at a loss in presenting a coherent foreign policy narrative and platform because none of them know anything about it. It is extremely striking that Usually foreign policy is not a hot topic, and we've discussed this previously, but now 
not only is it literally a hot topic, it it will be uh, the manifesto that will basically get the candidate to win the presidential election. And the French people want to know what they have to say. And very few of them have anything to say because they've not asked themselves these questions seriously before. They're scrambling to do so now, but you can see that they're scrambling. And again, you know, it seems now that the gap is widening in the polls between Macron and the others. But I think we still have to remain prudent. We don't know exactly what the level of turnout will be. And if we look at everything that's happened in the past two weeks, we still have four weeks left before the first round. So a lot can happen. And we are also in a situation where in the last calls that happened between Macron and Putin, the Elysee not only put out the readouts of, of these calls very quickly, it also commented the readouts. And the comment of the readouts, notably the last one, was that they were extremely worried and pessimistic of the days to come. They said the worst is yet to come. This was also repeated publicly, Jean-Yves Le Drian, France's foreign minister. And so there is also a sense of worry. And I, I think you can see it when Macron and his team on what is ahead of us, what lies ahead in terms of Putin's next moves uh, and how this will play into the European Union's uh, actions and ability, again, to maintain its unity uh, in the face of sanctions and in the face of, of a more and more assertive and aggressive Putin. If you're enjoying France Elects, you might want to consider subscribing. We have a special offer for podcast listeners, 12 weeks for £12 or €12 Euros in Europe. Just go to newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. And you can read all our international coverage at newstatesman.com slash international. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I just had one supplementary point or question, which is, one of the subplots of this campaign, which you know you and you and I were discussing with some of our interlocutors in Paris, was the sense of some sort of looming realignment on the French right, and we've seen signs of that, you know, with this possibly some sort of rupture over Russia. Now we've also seen Marine Le Pen's niece formally endorsing uh, Zemmour. We've seen the 
fractures on the conventional right in Pecresse's uh, Republicain. Um, and I think that was that looked quite likely in any event, but particularly if Macron wins as resoundingly as it looks like he might now, and particularly with this new question of, of, of where France positions itself in this new geopolitical world. Um, I wonder. I wonder if either of you actually would want to come in and, and say something about what Russia's attack on Ukraine does to to the French right in the long term. I mean, I know this is only speculation, but it, it seems to be a big question about the future of French politics. This is the big question ahead, and if Valérie Pécresse ends up where she is now, so basically fourth or fifth in the polls, there are some polls where she's behind Mélenchon it's going to be very complicated for her to assume the leadership of the party. And so there will be a sense that the Republican will have to divide. Eric Ciotti, who is in her team, who is this politician from Nice in the southeast of France, is completely Zemmour compatible. Uh, the fact that Marion Maréchal has left is going to strengthen Zemmour quite a lot. Clearly, they're preparing 2027. And there is a big streak of the mainstream right who could follow Zemmour and, and Marion Maréchal into forming a new party. I'm thinking notably of Laurent Vauquier, who's the president of the Rhône-Alpes region, uh, who was actually a former junior Europe minister under Sarkozy and who has completely shifted and flip-flopped his position on, on Europe. I have a question on where Michel Barnier goes because he has also... I would say almost flip-flopped between between his role as Brexit negotiator and his role now in the campaign. And so it would not be uh, unsurprising because the right has always done that, that a big part of the mainstream right today leaves and goes to be with, with Zemmour and Marion Maréchal. And that, I mean, that would be still a far-right party, but a largely more encompassing far-right party that could, you know, get maybe... 25, 30% of the vote, and they would prepare clearly for 2027. And the other, I would say the remaining right, the more moderate ones, they could just stay with Macron, depending on what happens with La République En Marche. Uh, but, you know, Edouard Philippe, Macron's former prime minister, he has uh, created a party, which I guess is to, to welcome and to host this moderate right. And then you would see a split between the moderates who would be basically Macron compatible and the rest who would find uh, some solace in basically assuming their more far-right positions and being with Marion Maréchal and, and Eric Zemmour. Mm -hmm. Just on specifically the, the Ukraine issue and how that will affect the right, I would say we don't really yet know what the effects of this crisis are going to look like um, in the kind of medium and long term. The picture on the ground from Ukraine is still very much in flux. To what extent Russia can expect a military victory or, or not uh, is still... You know, very, very unclear. And the next stages of, of what happens in Ukraine and perhaps even further afield, how NATO responds and so on, there are vastly varying possible outcomes. It's, it's quite easy to foresee a number of scenarios in which, as you say, Jeremy, perhaps the right has to rethink its attitude to Russia for varying degrees, either because in the worst case scenario, Russia is a kind of new imperialist power which controls most of of Ukraine and um, is this is this kind of totalitarian military superpower on the EU's doorstep, or on the contrary, perhaps they uh, they get quite severely defeated in Ukraine and it, it becomes a sort of quagmire, and then Russia looks a lot weaker, and that would also force a rethink of how the right should should respond to to Russia and how the the right should view Russia, because I think 
in general, a lot of the sympathy towards Russia from the right is because Russia is viewed as a strong state with which, I mean, perhaps there's some ideological sympathy for Russia, but also it's this idea that we need to work with them because they're strong and they're there and mm. we have no choice. And um, conceivably, some kind of Russia, which has shown it's unable to, to conquer Ukraine and which has shown that Ukraine was a gamble too far, could force a, a rethink of, of that particular point of view. And I think that's true of European politics well beyond France as well, for what it's worth. And with that, thank you very much for both being here this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of France Elects. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.